Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, host of the RouterFlex podcast and founder and CEO of our day job recruiting firm, RouterFlex. We hope you enjoy this episode. And as a reminder, please subscribe to the podcast for updates and news. Finally, if you haven't already, check out the series of books we've published on hiring, interviewing, and overall career advice titled The RouterFlex Guide, available on Amazon. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Most homeowners don't have the time or expertise to properly take care of their home, which causes costly issues to arise. That's where Cura Home Maintenance comes in. We're a full-service, routine maintenance company that was developed by a certified home inspector. Each quarter, we service our clients' homes following manufacturer's recommendations to properly maintain all the necessary appliances. We provide the materials and expertise to prolong the life of your property, creating a healthy and efficient environment for your family. From top to bottom, we'll maintain and service your home. To get started, we have a property inspection to determine what needs to be maintained, and a maintenance plan is created based on your preferences. From refrigerator coils to filters, vents, and drains, we do it all, and we do it well. Contact us today for your free routine maintenance inspection and never worry about your maintenance again. David Wood on the Rider Flex podcast. Hello, David. How are you, sir? Steve, it's great to see you. It's been way too long. It has been probably over 10 years uh, since uh, we met for dinner. We, For the listeners, we worked together. See, I was the president of Healthy Back, uh, right. so beds, massage chairs, office chairs, and you were the CEO for Human Touch. That's correct. Yeah. So that much has changed here. <laughs> By the way, you're you're beating the odds, my friend. What are the uh, if you Google it, the average CEO lasts like four point five years or three point five years, like, right? Exactly. Like that, right. You're you're way above average. Congratulations. Yeah. So is that a good thing? I think it is. <laughs> okay. I think it is. Uh, we'll get into that. I want to get into that, obviously. But yeah, sure. you know, that's, um, yeah, to be CEO for as long as you have for the same company and now two different companies for that long. Yeah. Uh, not easy to do, which we'll we'll get yeah. into. Um, well, but- I feel like it's been many different companies, but we can get into that later, right? <laughs> <laughs> David, for the listeners, if you don't mind... How about some personal stuff? Let's let's start with where you grew up and and maybe mom, dad, siblings, if you don't mind. Give me some way back. Start start from the beginning a little bit. Way backs. Yeah. You, you know, Steve, I, I I used to say, you know, when when people ask this, that you know, I had a fairly normal childhood, uh, and usual and and nothing out of the ordinary. But it, honestly, as as time has gone on, I've learned that's that's actually just not true. Um, you know, I, and, and, and I've become more and more thankful and grateful over time. I was mm-hmm. born in the most prosperous country in the world at my time, which only 4% of those being born at that time were born in the U S I stand. was born just late enough to not get caught up or be drafted into Vietnam. Mm-hmm. I was born just soon enough to be able to grow and get through puberty into some sense of adulthood where you could actually still buy a home. I feel a lot for people who were born beyond myself where a lot of economic realities are just, you know, they're just out of reach. 
Mm -hmm. I'm privileged. I'm a white male raised at a time where it was helpful to be a white male by upper middle class parents who were incredibly nurturing, incredibly caring. And so when I look at all those dynamics and, and you know the, probab the probabilities, if you net it all out, I'm incredibly blessed. And you know the older I get, the more I appreciate that and realize how rare that is. And and as you have more and more life experiences and see, you know, other people, other countries, other civilizations, cultures, we we are so so fortunate here. And and I I try to make a point of reminding myself that every day that while life has its challenges, there's there's a lot that's going on here. So I feel incredibly blessed. How about your um, folks? What what did your mom and dad do? Yeah. So. Yeah, my mom and dad met at Berkeley many years ago, back in, the, it, was, it was a little bit pre-hippie days at the time. I was going to say, I was going to say, they must have been hippies, right? Or maybe, or no, uh, pre -hippie. oh, they were pre, pre Yeah, they were pre-hippie, okay. not, not okay. too far uh, from there, but but <laughs> earlier. Um, my mom, wonderful nurturing mom, had a number of different kind of jobs uh, over time, um, not the least of which was, you know, being, being mom and staying at home, but uh, had a lot of um, a lot of different roles. She was an administrative assistant for a number of years, but she was also one of those people that if you had a school committee, a charitable foundation, or whatever it is, uh, she would rapidly become the mayor of whatever that <laughs> whatever that thing was. You know, so because uh, everybody liked her, she she was just very engaging, valued relationships. Everybody loved talking to her uh, and pulling things together. So you know, she would kind of take that leadership role out of default for whatever she was asked to do and nice. and I, I i like to think maybe now and then maybe a little of that rubbed off on me. Uh, you think you think just a little just a tad uh, i don't know i i <laughs> she does a lot of stuff that i i i don't know i could never figure out how to do um my dad interestingly enough is and was for many years a rocket scientist so he was involved uh with some of the uh most early missions to putting a man on the moon very cool uh, helped to develop the uh, propulsion engines that ultimately got, you know, the Apollo missions up in the air and ultimately on onto the lunar surface. And um, he uh, started as an engineer, worked on that project, ultimately became the head of Rocketdyne, which got acquired by Boeing and later by Pratt Whitney. And um, he, he became a pretty big deal as a um, as a scientist and, and uh, physicist and you know, just a remarkable, remarkable uh, career. Um, I've always looked up to him. I, you know, I got thrown into the other end of the brain pool, um, you know, so I didn't quite have what it took to do that sort of thing. But, you know, try to scrape away with uh, whatever I could do uh, uh, my best with. You know, my dad retired back in, um, it was in 08, he retired. And to this day, you know, it's been 15 years, but I remember it was uh, his retirement party was, locally here at the Ronald Reagan Library uh, near where I'm based. And uh, the dignitaries that were there to wish him well were amazing. There was all kinds of trophies and space rocks and memorabilia there. And uh, the most amazing gift that I saw that was given to him at his retirement party, you, you may recall, uh, I think you're old enough, Steve, but you know, during the 60s, you know, it was Kennedy's objective to be to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade, if you recall yes. that. There was a whole yes. speech around Yep. So the most prized thing that I saw, and uh, I look at it every time I get to see my dad, um, he actually was, for his retirement, given the actual written draft of that speech by Kennedy as a retirement gift in on the actual letter with the actual ink. 
Wow, that's pretty cool. And I said, you know, if yeah. anything punctuates a career, I mean, I hope I get a watch when I'm done, you know, you know. <laughs> um, but it, it just truly, truly amazing um, to see this from my dad. And so he's always, that's always been an inspiration to me. Uh, and I've always felt like I need to do my level best to to make him proud. Still alive? Still healthy? Still oh, yeah. with us? They are. Yeah, they're they're both long retired. They're I'm 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 down here kind of in the hills of Malibu and they're up the road in Santa Barbara about an hour or so. Okay. So you yeah, oh. see them see them pretty regularly. So they've been married like 50 something years or longer. They've been married 50 something years. That's exactly right. Uh, actually, <laughs> actually they've been married 60 something years. How about that? Wow, that's How pretty cool. That? Any any siblings? I actually have a brother, a younger brother, um, who's a restaurateur. Oh. Okay. A job I would never want. So he actually has uh, a few actually very well-known restaurants up in the Northern California in the Bay Area. Uh, okay. One is called Wood Tavern. Don't know where he got that name. Um, and then he owns another pretty well-known restaurant up there called The Wolf. And oh. um, I watch what he does. That that Talk about a just grueling, grueling job, you know, from the time you get up in the morning to go there and order all this stuff and handle the people till closing at night. I mean, it's it's literally a 16-hour job a day. Yeah. Um, just amazing. And, and when you're a good restaurant or a well-known restaurant, everybody coming in everybody day, you know, every day is expecting the experience, right? So the yeah. bar is here every day. Uh, you know, I it's it's just I have I have a lot of admiration for it uh, because I, I recognize just how challenging that is. I don't know how many people I've, I've known in my life that uh, thought it would be really cool to own a bar slash restaurant. And then they try it for a few years and they're like, oh, my God, yeah, I can't do this it. The, really the hours, the weekends, the schedules, the nights. Yeah, Ooh, yeah tough. Yeah, no, it's tough. Uh, and, and, and most don't make it. But uh, so most you don't know, make it. Yeah. Sure he's done well for a long time. But boy, it's, it's taxing. Very good. And now uh, married kids yourself, social. What's a single? What, what's going on with you, David? Yeah, I, I <laughs> yeah, I'm married, not quite 60 years, um, but actually this year, 38 years, if you can believe All that. Right. My wife, right. yeah. So my, my wife and I met, uh, we both had, uh, you know, kind of part-time jobs at school. Um, back in the day, I'm going to continue to date myself, I feel like here, uh, but, but back in the day, there were these things called department stores. I don't know if you remember those. Um, and, and one of the larger ones out here is one called Robinson's. It was actually part of the uh, May company, May company that acquired them at some point. Oh, so, okay. yeah. So, you know, I was going to college trying to figure out how to, you know, make a living part time through some of that. And I worked on the docks receiving product would roll the product up to various departments. And uh, I also brought all the all the goods and materials and kind of packing stuff up to the gift wrap area at Robinson's, you know, so mm -hmm. bought some gift wrap. Mm -hmm. and up in gift wrap was this this wonderful young woman who I met and, um, you know, uh, connected with her a little bit. Um, that, that, that gift wrap place was never so well stocked. In all of <laughs> I was going to say, uh, yeah. Anytime somebody needs to go upstairs, that. you're like, yeah, yeah, I'll go. Yeah, yeah, I can take it. <laughs> I think they need more bubble wrap right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, so that's how we met and we've been together 38 years. We've got uh, two kids. I've, uh, they're both, um, through school and everything grown up, uh, both married. Um, and, uh, my son and his, uh, wife actually who lived down, um, about a half hour from us are expecting their first child in November. So, I was just going to say, any grandkids yet? So you got one coming. That, that will soon. be the first one. Yeah. And then my daughter lives uh, about 20 minutes from here, and we we see uh, her and, and her husband um, three or four times a week. So it's, yeah, a lot of good connection there. Very good. Have you decided what you're going to call yourself yet? Papa, Grandpa? What Have you have you had these conversations yet? <laughs> uh, 
That's a good thought, Steve. No, I haven't. Um, you know, just yeah. Hey, 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 man, <laughs> dude. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I, I'll have, you're right. I'll have to think about that. Well, I never, I never thought it would be. I have two granddaughters now, and uh, I didn't really, never really thought about it. But the other, when the other grandparents get involved, all of a sudden there's this weird conversation where you find out, oh, John's planning on calling himself Papa or whatever, right? And then you're like, well, right. well I, I kind of wanted that one. I don't know. Is that taken? Can we have a conversation about it? <laughs> we draw straws. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, That's congratulations! You got you got one coming. Very good. She went to UCLA too. Your wife, both of you guys, UCLA. So I, yeah, I did my undergrad at UCLA. Uh, I was doing, uh, I did a couple of years at uh, Cal State here in Northridge beforehand, and she went to Cal State Northridge. So we didn't meet there. We both happened to go there for a while, and then I moved on to UCLA, and okay. and then uh, yeah, kind of on from there. Were you a good kid uh, at home? Were you like straight A student, uh, library every day, or was there some rebel like, uh, you know, give us something fun, David? Did did you ever have to call your dad from the sheriff's office or anything? You know, anything interesting? <laughs> um. Not, you know, not at that age. I, I probably was the prototypical, really good kid, you know, okay. just okay. never mouthed off, never right. got in trouble. Yeah, I, I got good grades. I studied. I, you know, I did a lot of things. Yeah, like, like everyone, you reach some point in your life where you step out of that a little bit. But but yeah, growing up, I was I'd like to think I was a pretty easy kid um, and, you know, careful consider it not jumping too far out of bounds um okay and you know I, I think my parents set a good you know as role models at home and um you know i followed that along i didn't you know question their judgment or question anything they were doing or uh um you know it, it was it was a pretty pretty normal and easy childhood growing up okay i let my good. brother at the other end of that and oh so your brother okay okay he was the rebel yeah, the he was more the troublemaker <laughs> Not not calling from the sheriff's office, but but a little more to handle than things. Uh, was he younger? Yes, yeah, he's three years younger. Okay, all right. You set you yeah. See, you you set the standard too high, and then he's like, okay, everybody expects me to be as good as David, so I'm gonna I'm gonna be a rebel a little bit. Well, you know, I I truly hope that's not the case at this point. You know, you're doing the best you can. You, yeah, I was too young to ever think about what how what I do impacts someone else. You know, that's that's one of the things I guess you learn later in life. Uh, let me ask you this. What are you doing to stay in shape? Cause you look pretty good, my friend. What, what's going on? Give me your, give me your uh, cardio slash uh, diet. What, what are we doing over there? Um, I, you know, I try to eat healthy. I don't eat a lot of junk. It used to be, I would, uh, you know, uh, gobble down eight to 10, you know, coffees or lattes a day with all the cream and all that. I put on like calories. I got rid of that whole routine. You know, you'd have your snack. I, I, it, it's, it's a no snack zone uh, during the day. And then I usually just eat once a day. So my wife and I, yes, my wife and I have, have, have termed something new. It's called dunch, which is basically just an early dinner. So, you know, you eat around four or five o'clock. That's all we eat. And that's, that's pretty much what we do on most days. Um, yeah, but by, by two, three o'clock, you're not starving? No. No? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, nothing I can't handle anyway. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then how about the coffee? Now, do you still do coffee? Just don't add the creamer. I do a little bit of coffee. I've really tried to move much more to decaf and, and no creamer. Yeah, it just goes straight to straight to black. So it cuts out a lot of that and a lot of that. And then I, you know, I, I try to exercise five days a week as best I okay. can. And, okay. and, and I will certainly say, you know, my, my wife and I were just saying the other day, as, as challenging as COVID was and how much it changed a lot of what we do, in some mm -hmm. ways, it opened a lot of doors. 
um, because, you know, as you can see, I'm, I'm working from home, uh, which I do most of the time. But, you know, for me, it's say three to three and a half hours of commuting time and prep time, get ready and get in the car, all that and stuff, which you can dedicate a chunk of that to just working out. Oh, so, no doubt about it. Yeah, life so changing. It, it, yep. it helped to precipitate a lot of the ability to maintain health and vitality. And, and you know, boy, it makes such a difference. No doubt about it. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, I'm, I'm huge on that myself. Uh, the I definitely exercise more now because I don't have that commute, that grinding commute or, you know, yeah. living in an airport or flying in the hotels. I mean, I stuff to travel sometimes, but not nearly as much as I used to, which is, which is yeah. great. Uh, yeah, you and me both. I, I don't miss those days. There was a there was a point there was a point uh, where I think what's the most miles you flew in one year? You remember what your 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 year record was? I I, I don't know how many uh, miles I flew in one year. I, I did note the other day uh, or uh, last week Delta sent me my notice that said you've reached our two million miler club. <laughs> yeah, like I really don't want to be in that club. Not, yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. It was congratulations. You reached two million. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, I yeah. traveled all the time in prior life. You know, I, I I ran the retail stores for Bose, and it was back when we were going from zero to one hundred and ten. So it was meeting with developers, was going to store side. I I racked up a lot of miles in those days. Yeah, if I never have to get on another plane again, it's fine with me. <laughs> Unless it's like a private yeah. jet. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. That being said, though, I do love traveling. I do love seeing other parts of the world. I do love seeing other cultures. You know the. You know, the, the flight to Dallas Fort Worth, I can probably do without, but but seeing a lot of other uh, a lot of other cultures is very inspiring. How about this? Coach from LA to New York. Yeah, no, please. I don't don't make me. <laughs> Done it many times. Yeah. Even in row 30. Yeah, even in row 37E or whatever the heck that is there. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yes. Okay. Yeah, right by the back. I'm having nightmares. You're making me have nightmares right now while we're talking. Yeah, I know. It's horrifying. <laughs> uh so you majored in economics uh, for your undergrad yeah. where, and for your MBA. Um, yeah. What were you thinking? What, what was, what were you, what was the plan? <laughs> what was the plan? <laughs> That's a good question. What was I thinking? Um, you know what, Steve, I don't know that I was thinking uh, at, at that time. I, I knew I needed to go to college. I, I, when I was, did a couple of years at Cal State Northridge beforehand, you know, I took a lot of general ed. So I took all the usual, it's the sciences, it's the, the arts, all that stuff. Okay. But I did have a couple of econ classes. I had a micro and a macro and, and found that I, I found it actually quite interesting and engaging. I, I did well in it. I got A's in those classes. I said, maybe I should pursue this a little bit more. Okay. And so I've taken a lot more econ both there and then ultimately UCLA. And, and um, you know, when, when you're young, you don't have context for this stuff. You're reading it out of a book. You're seeing case examples, but you don't really understand how all of that education kind of fits into, into the real world. You know, only years later would I feel like, oh, that's what they meant by, you know, your marginal revenue and your marginal cost curves intersecting. And that's where you want to peg where your cost model is and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, at the time, it was just just a kid sucking it in. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of went that direction because I knew I wasn't going to be a rocket scientist uh, like my dad. Um, and, you know, I had a number of different jobs that I was going to school in, one of which was um, the uh uh, Robinson's role where I met my wife, but, but later, you know, to put myself through school, uh, through UCLA and all that, um, I sold uh, hi-fi, um, stereo. I was a real, I was really into music. You know, me and my friends were all into music. We loved listening to great music on the best speakers and the best systems that you can buy. You know, those, 
those life-changing experiences where I went to an old federated store and sat in the audio room and there was these big clipsh, clipsh horns that were there and the sales guy put a needle on the record of Steely Dan Asia. It was like the most transformative experience I'd ever had at that time. And I said, you know what? This is awesome. <laughs> yeah. If I could do something in this space, I would do something in this space. And so I did. Um, and, you know, time you could actually, you know, make a fair bit of money selling, you know, turntables and receivers and speakers. And, and that's, uh, you know, that's kind of what funded a lot of my uh, living expenses. through. And, you, uh, and you, had the, you had the education and the numbers experience. You knew the numbers, but you also had the EQ to be able to transform right into sales and, and, uh, and do well in that area. Sounds like to me. Yeah, you know, I, I ne growing up, I never thought of myself as a salesperson, but, you know, even today, I relate to all the things that I do in my world day to day, and the sales side is still what drives a lot of passion for me, even though a lot of folks would say, well, you don't really seem like a sales guy, and and, and for many people, they would be right, um, but I've always ha had a passion for that, primarily when I'm passionate about what it is that I'm selling, and I, and I think that's one of the key things in sales. I mean, there are salespeople who can sell anything. But when you're selling something that you yourself just have tons of energy and passion about, it just bleeds through everything. So, um, yeah, I, I was I was happy to say I, I spent a few years uh, at one hi-fi company. And then uh, I went out of college. Uh, I worked for a Pacific Stereo. Uh, and I don't know if you recall them, but they were about a 70-store hi-fi chain, making good money, going to school. And then, um, uh, I, I in fact... I, I was the leading salesperson in the entire chain of 70 stores. How about and one morning, this was after I got married. Uh, my wife and I had a small condo. We were scraping to get by. We had just, uh, I, I, our son, who is now 37, was actually not born yet, but my wife was six months pregnant. And I was about ready to go to school one morning. The phone rings and it's my manager at that Pacific Stereo saying, look, don't don't bother coming in today because we just had to declare bankruptcy and we're closing all the stores. So I had a six month pregnant wife just married. I had a new mortgage. I was paying to go to school and suddenly pff, all that just instantly dried up. And that, that, that was one of those pivotal moments in life. And she was not working at that time. And she was not working at that time because she was expecting. And so we were saying, oh, my God. What are we going to do? We just lost our source. And we just had a mortgage. We're going to go under. What are we going to do to take care of our child in three months? A half hour later, literally a half hour later, phone rings again. And it's uh, Bose Corporation offering me a job based in Southern California. 30 minutes later, you know, I, I was on the phone. I turned to my wife and I said, you know, I probably should take this job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't, you didn't negotiate you know, catch, they said, you got to get on a plane to Quebec and you need to be here in 48 hours. Done. Okay. Okay. So Bose Corporation obviously had, they got news of the bankruptcy and they started grabbing up people as fast as they could. Well, it turn, turns out that what was happening was, um, you know, they had headhunters in shopping the stores. And so I, I, I had somebody come in, was playing customer with me and I guess they liked what they saw. Yep. And, you know, and I had a couple of conversations with them prior, just cursory, but I really didn't think anything would come of it. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, sometimes life has those moments, you know, that are just like that, that you say, man, there's something going on well beyond my own power of what's mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. I need to tune into this to figure out what's, 
this this is guidance. This is this is a force that is moving me in a direction. I really need to pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. You know, for the listeners, it's there's there's a couple of things there I want to highlight. The first one is when at, when you're at your job, you never know who you're going to run into, especially if you work with the public. You, you know, anybody. It could be anybody standing on the other side of the counter, a recruiter, an executive for the competition. It could be somebody, if you're in the service business, it could be somebody that needs your service. I mean, you just never know. And if you do the right thing, work hard and take care of people, usually good stuff's going to come your way. And that's what happened. I mean, they, they they picked up on your name. Somebody had you on a list and boom, you get a phone call. The, the other thing is... Uh, you know, everybody is devastated when they get laid off, whether it's a laid off, layoff or a termination or whatever happens. Usually it's more than 30 minutes, but usually it's a few days where they're like, oh, shit, you know, wow, what am I going to do? And they're having this moment. But same thing, if if you if you're a good person and you do the right thing and you have a good reputation, usually it's going to end up for the better. You're probably going to end up in a stronger spot than you were before and it and something happened to cause you to take that pivot so so then you end up going to work for bose and by the way for the listeners that don't look you up on linkedin linkedin uh, i just want to tell them 19 years with more promotions than i don't even know how many promotions there how do you talk to the listeners a little bit about advice and experience around getting promoted uh at you know what they should do if they want to get promoted and and then tie that into how do you make it 19 20 years with with one company without burning out well you know i i I think one variable in all of this of course is a lot of good fortune you know i i could take all the other variables and not have good fortune and it could be a very different result so I, i it's never lost on me that so much of what brings you from point A to point B are things that are outside your control. Um, now, the likelihood of those things doing something for you are greatly enhanced when you're doing things that you can control, correct? Bingo. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think I was fortunate, uh, at least with, you know, having the right, right tailwind at the time. So, you know, when I came to Bose, it was, I, I, I was a field rep. I didn't know anything. I was just, I was literally still in college, uh, you know, just a rep in Southern California, just trying to figure it out. But I loved the product. I loved, you know, high fines. I was passionate about. So, you know, I just went out there and just hit everything I could do. I I worked my butt off um, and tried to make connections and open new accounts and do all this stuff. And I was excited about what we did. And I think it rubbed off on people and and actually grew a a pretty nice territory um, uh, for for a number of years. And that was really my background was kind of learning the commercial side of that business as a you know, kind of a manufacturer, you know, representative of an area, which, you know, laid a great foundation for everything else I would learn beyond that. Um, but I think, you know, what really propels you over time, <clears throat> I, I, for whatever reason, because this didn't show up when I was a kid, but it certainly started to show up when I got older, which is, I was really fond of taking risks. And I was willing to jump into the deep end of the pool where other people weren't willing to jump. So, you know, I, I'd spent all my life in Southern California. I'd never been out of Southern California. I had a family here, everybody else here, but I had an interesting opportunity back in the days. And this was in the late eighties that said, Hey, we've got this, we have this opportunity with, if you might recall these guys too, Sears department stores. <laughs> and um, there was a, a, a project where we would basically build these little store in stores at Sears with our own product and the key it with demonstration and all this. Right. They said, but the key, 
the problem is it's in Detroit, Michigan. All right. So if you want to do this, we need to, you know, next month, we got to put you on a plane. We're going to put you in some new housing. You're going to go live in Detroit and try to figure out how to get this whole thing going. Oh, okay. Okay. Southern California to Detroit. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, I, I was still a young kid. I didn't know anything. And then I had to manage like eight people. I'd never managed anybody. Uh, I'd never figured out. I'd never managed a project before. Uh, I, I'd never done anything of what is being asked to do other than maybe show some aptitude for how you could demonstrate and engage people around selling product. But it was like, but this is great. This is what life's about, right? It's, it's, it's about it getting out and jumping into something. I don't know where it's going to end. What'd your wife say? What'd your wife say when you're like, hey, we're going to move to Detroit? <laughs> And that's where, Steve, I mean, you have to have that fortune in your life. Because yes. I think many wives would have said, what the, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, yeah. No, we're not moving to Detroit. My whole family's here. All my friends are here. But she was totally on board. Wow. That's a blessing, and, my friend. And it's a big part a of why we're together now, you know, 38 yes. years later. It's about building your life together. And man, you know, having that partner, that spouse in your life behind you and vice versa, by the way makes all the difference in the world pursuing, you know, everything that you hope to do in life. So we moved to Detroit. <laughs> and then more promotion and then more promotions. And then they moved you and to more promotions. And then there was an opportunity. Circuit city was big in the day. And then I had a chance to take that on, but I had to move to Atlanta. So we said, let's move to Atlanta. And I moved to Atlanta. And then another thing came along. It was like, well, I got to move to new England. So we moved to new England. Um, but you know, when you're, when you're young in that age, you're, you're just, naive enough, I think, to not let a lot of the day-to-day things that could bog you down or force you to say no, not yes. allow you to say no. Um, did you, so did, you, uh, did you raise your hand too? Was that part of it? Were you part of like, hey, yes. hey, hey, I'm ready for the next thing. I'm ready for yes. next. Or I, okay. I'm ready. Yeah. And there were various points in time along the line too, where I felt like, okay, I'm doing this and it's it's good. And now I'm kind of getting bored. And, and you know, if something doesn't come along, I may make some other choice, but you know, I had the good fortune there where you know, about every three or four years, there was something new that came along and, yes. and it ultimately led to, um, you know, the, probably the more key thing I had there at Bose was when we actually started our own retail stores. And this was, this was 30 years ago this month. And uh, in fact, I'm going back for a reunion of all the folks that were engaged with those stores next month back in New England, where there's going to be, you know, hundreds of former people in our retail group telling stories and reminiscing. And that's it nice. Was, it was kind of a seminal moment in my my working career. But it was one of those things, you know, back in the day, manufacturers didn't do retail stores. You know, it was right? like a, it, it was clearly a how dare you. You know, a Best Buy would say, you're going to compete with us and do your own that's stores. True. <laughs> yeah um and this was this was before apple this is before microsoft this is before mm-hmm. any other folks do it in fact three years after we opened our own stores for bose we had apple knocking on our, on our door and saying you know how did you do that <laughs> hey by the and way you course, did yeah, that and then they you blew did. the doors off ever since but um you but did that pretty- in 93 you were only well, how, yeah i was gonna say 30 yep <laughs> yep I was wow 30. 30 year old yeah. kid leading, leading the retail division of a manufacturer. How about that? That's, that's a lot yeah, of responsibility. So we, so we scaled from one to 110 in about uh, six years. Congratulations, my friend. What a, what yeah, a ride yeah. there. What a ride there. It was, the- it was an incredible ride. Um, but you know, what I think about most fondly on this, and I think this is key to any job that you're in. I, again, good fortune, good timing. All of that was, was great, but man, I had good people. 
I had good people around me. I had such wonderful folks that you know became part of that team. You know, because going from one store and you get this great culture, it was all about demonstration and engagement. And so we wanted to deliver an experience that you couldn't have like anywhere else. And and we did a pretty good job of it for store one and two and four. But then we said, all right, you know, how are we going to get to 40, 80, 100? You know, I, I can't be there. You can't be there. We, we need to somehow figure out within the organization how you foster that culture that maintains that level of engagement through growth. Mm. which is a challenge, as you know, um, yes. but was also one of the most fun things that we did. You know, it was really just trying to create a spirit and a camaraderie. I mean, we got 1,200 people in the organization doing this thing, you know, building infrastructure, but we were all just so focused on, on delivering an incredible experience for the company. We're all passionate about what we do. Most of us are passionate about what we do. So um, that was that, that talking. So you know, a little bit of a tie into this. I worked music retail for a long time back when we had to actually drive to a store to buy our music. You know, you can remember, I remember those, those days. days. I, I, I miss those days. <laughs> Me too, actually. Yeah, going to the music store was fun, wasn't it? I mean, and uh, it was the same. I worked for Camelot Music, which uh, was one of the many music retail that. chains and um, very similar. The culture and the passion and the camaraderie is what I remember most. I mean, I'm sure we had good processes and procedures, I guess, you know, but what I remember is the culture and the people and the passion and the music. And okay, I got to make sure I know what the new releases are this week. Cause if a customer comes in, I got to make, they're going to ask me. And if I don't know, I'm going to be embarrassed. And, and, you know, just being in that environment was special. I, I still, to this day, and I, I went on to run a couple of $40 million companies, but if I had to like pick my most favorite time in life, it was when I yeah. was like a little yeah. district, district manager in music retail. I mean, it was the life. Uh, yeah. It was also before HR had a lot of rules. So we uh, did a lot of things uh, at, at events that we probably couldn't do today. <laughs> yeah, I could probably imagine a few of those. <laughs> I will have friends that will call me up and be like, hey, do you remember that one time we were at that hotel? We were throwing mattresses off the fifth floor. And swimming how did pool. we get away with that? Right? Uh, yeah. How, how did we get away with that? I don't know how we did that. How did we do that? <laughs> yes. Yes. Anyway, uh, what a great run. Congratulations. What uh, did you get recruited away? Did they sell? I'm trying to remember what, how did you exit there? Uh, what was the, yeah. I, I, yeah, you know, it was an interesting time in my life and I spent 19 years there. I probably could have spent another 19 years there if I wanted, you know, I, I got to that stage in my life where, you know, I figured I'm okay. I'm kind of at that mid career spot. I I've loved it here, done some great things, working with great people. Yeah. I could continue on, but I just, again, had that bug in me, Steve, that said, if I stay here another 10, I'm going to look back and regret staying because I won't have done something else that just creates a much more rounded experience for just career, but life. Right. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I, I made a very, I, there was a, a, an opportunity that came up that I wasn't entirely passionate about. So also why I didn't stay, but it was enough for me to leave Bose at that time. And okay. um, it was kind of a transitional time at Bose and it kind of made sense for me to go. And so I, I elected to, to move on. Early and 40s at that time? Early 40s? 
So that was 2005. So I was 42. <clears throat> yeah, it's a good, that's a good point, a good tip for the listeners right here. Because yeah, if you would have stayed 10 more years, you'd have been in your fifties and then it would have been, if, I don't want to say it would have been too late, but it would have been much harder yeah. to, to transition because being in the recruiting business for a living, I can tell you, because I talk to 50 plus year old candidates every week. And once you're past 50, uh, it's harder. <laughs> yes. Uh, and and I've worked with enough colleagues around me to kind of see some of that happening. Um, yes. it, it entered my mind. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was a major force in my decision, but it certainly did cross my mind as I saw yeah, it happening. Yeah. Good timing um, for you right there. It was a good time. Because when you're early 40s and you're an executive, if you're a 42 year old executive, that is your peak moment to make a move to really like, okay, this is my moment. Like right in here, this, this five to six year period right here is your key earning period. And if you're going to make a jump to another executive position or another company, you need to do it right then. I, I highly advise people, most people to do it right in there. So good, good timing for you. Good move there. But, but um, you stayed three years. Uh, who was that with? It was a company uh, called Jabra. Uh, they're still around. Uh, okay, they're up in New England, a Danish company. So I spent many, many an hour on a flight to Copenhagen uh, for uh -huh. years going back and forth running that business. But, you know, I, I got into it when Bluetooth was still new. You know, it was higher price, cool technology. Look at all the cool stuff you can do with Bluetooth. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, in a span of about six or nine months, you know, Bluetooth went from an interesting technology to a just kind of a cheap, you know, You'd see headsets that were sold in the better places for two hundred dollars. Then, then you'd go to the uh, you know drugstore and see them on the rack for nineteen ninety five. And it's like, okay, this this became entirely uninteresting very quickly. Gotcha. Okay. And it was it became a commodity business. And back and forth to Denmark and different culture and different ex. You know, I, it just yeah, it wasn't for me. And I knew it wasn't for me probably a couple of years. So yeah, I, gotcha. that's, that's when I knew I had to make my my next next escape. I never, I never regretted leaving. I never regretted leaving. I was okay. very happy that I left and happy that they even had the challenging experience because I knew there'd be another experience in front of that. Yeah, absolutely. That's what we, brought me to Human Touch. Uh, did you know somebody at Human Touch or did a recruiter call you? Did you have a relationship with somebody? You know, back, back at that time in my early 40s, I was having periodic conversations with various folks in different uh, both operational areas, but also financial areas. You know, so okay. there were a few private equity companies who would periodically reach out, you know, because they were... You know, the whole private equity thing is acquire a company, put on a lot of debt, let's figure out how to turn around, grow its value and spin it off. I mean, and so they're they're constantly uh, at the time and really today, I believe as well, you know, looking for operators. You know, who, who can we hire to run a company that's going to help to build the value and, and allow us to you know, uh, realize a return? Mm -hmm. And so um, one of the uh, private equity groups I was talking to was was the one that at the time had owned Human Touch. Okay. And so I had a fair bit of dialogue with them. And then um, that ultimately led me to taking on the role at Human Touch, which was quite an adventure at the outset. <laughs> 2008. Uh, so a PE firm owned all of it or the majority at that time when you first took over? The PE firm essentially owned all of it. Okay. That okay. Okay. And um, let me guess the number when they when they bought it, the numbers weren't great. That it was there was there were some holes to dig out of. <laughs> But yeah, oh, by the so, way, by the way, it was 2008, right before the crash. <laughs> right. So, yes, this was the middle of 2008. So, yes, 90 days ahead of Lehman, you know, everything kind of going to heck. 
So if that wasn't bad enough, uh, when I landed actually at Human Touch, it's it's one of those things, you know, some folks will tell you, well, before you buy that car, always check under the hood, right? You want to look under the hood? I didn't, I didn't look under the hood. You, as you much, didn't ask. <laughs> as much as I probably should have, right? Okay. Um, so Human Touch had a great run. It was privately owned for a number of years. It was the first to bring in massage chairs in the U.S., sold a lot of them through Sharper Image back when Sharper Image was, you know, the place that you saw things that were new and cool. And, you know, they, right. they roll them in toward the front of the store. Salespeople would demonstrate it, sell it. Company grew. It, it must have been a wonderful world back then. I, I never saw that world, but it must have been, must have been wonderful in the first, I don't know, 20 years or so. Uh... Um, but yes, by 2008, what had happened is Sharper Image had started having challenges. Uh, as did Brookstone, ultimately went out of business. So the company I came into, you know, private equity, when they buy something, you know, they'll they'll acquire it, they'll go find a bunch of people to provide long-term debt. So they'll put debt on the balance sheet, take out cash, you know, that private equity gets paid, a lot of debt on the balance sheet. So I arrived at a company that had lost 60% of its top line in the previous 12 months. This is three months before the crash, by the way. Yes, yes. (laughs) They had lost 60% of the top line in 12 months prior to my arrival. They had a debt load that was about 2x what their sustaining revenue was at that time in <laughs> debt with interest payments and all of that. Um, the business obviously was challenged, but just really trying to struggle with keeping up with cash flow to pay and service the debt. And then three months later, you had yeah. to crash. So I'll remember, I remember meeting with the principal of the private equity group at that time back in October 2008 that said, wow, yeah, you know, the business is kind of tough and wow, oh, this is all crashed and yeah, I'm so sorry about that. Well, do your best. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, can we, I want to, I got a bunch of questions here, but I want to just pause for the listeners on a tip. So one of the things I, I will get on a pretty consistent basis is just phone calls from friends or executives looking for advice on an offer they've received. And, so, and, and often it will be, they're entering into sea level for the first time. And they'll say, Hey, I just want to run this, run this past, past you, David, I tell them my number one piece of advice. And you, you would think maybe everybody would do this, but they don't, especially if it's the first time into sea level, I will say you have to ask for audited financials like if they are if there are audited financials sometimes there aren't but really you've got to see the bank statement the cash flow the the financials like you've got to look at everything everything under the hood to your point because i made that mistake i made that mistake twice i took two ceo positions slash president positions without seeing uh, the right financials and i got there and was like oh shit okay yeah not good (laughs) yeah no, you're absolutely right. And, you know, and sometimes you, you, you look at those audit financials and there's a lot of numbers and there's a lot of classification of debt and assets and what is this intangible and so forth. So, you know, in addition, if you're not certain of that stuff, getting a professional to help you, you know, yes. interpret and understand that is probably wise as well. Yeah, no doubt about it. Did you have, en- I guess you had enough cash flow to survive making payroll for the next six months after the crash. I don't know how you pulled it. How'd you pull it off? Um, you know what? It was it was one of those things in October 2008, like many people, you, you didn't know where anything was going to land. I mean, it was it was a pretty uh, nervous time for everybody in the country. Yes. Right. Yep. Um, but, you know, I, I had one experience at Bose. It was all about grow, grow, grow and build, build, build and do this and do this and learned a lot along the way. 
And there was this weird part of me that relished this very different challenge that I was now saddled with, which was not at all what I had come from, but a whole new opportunity to learn. You know, that's sometimes that's how you got to frame up these problems or these challenging situations. Say, you know what? It's all going to be fine at the end of the day. Worst case, this is going to be a tremendous learning opportunity. True. And so it was. <laughs> and the one benefit that I had working for me in 2008 when I got there is a lot of the balance sheet was was not well managed. Okay? okay. So there was way, way, way too much inventory strewn across seven or eight warehouses. I don't know why. I don't know how much. That, that have- answers my that answers my question on how you got some of the cash flow to sustain. You burned off some of the inventory. <laughs> and there was plenty to burn. And then there was AR that was uncollected and there was plenty to collect. So, you know, by the middle of 2009, despite really tough circumstances, we raised a lot of cash. And we raised enough cash at that point to actually do a buyout of the debt as a first restructuring that got that really big pie down to a little pie. That was a major pivot point right there. Major major event for that. That was huge, huge. And ironically, part of what made that possible was that it was a really shitty time. How about that? These were good times. I'm not sure anybody would have taken, you know. Good point. How about that? Wow. You know, when life gives you lemons. (laughs) <laughs> and th- and now here we are uh what's almost 16 years later how much bigger is well now so how much have you grown in and and people and revenue i don't know if you can share exact revenue numbers but how much have you grown plus you've made some acquisitions yeah yeah so you know that's you're asking earlier to say wow you, you know you've been there 15 years and in, in one place but as i said it's been very it's been several very different experiences within the same place over that 15 years so you know, as I like to tell tell people now, I'm into year 16 of my three year plan. And um, <laughs> how many PE for, how, how many PE owners have you worked for? <laughs> uh, really, just the one. So the the PE oh. firm that uh, um, acquired the company that I kind of fell into. You know, there was two subsequent restructurings, and in the final one, they actually exited. Okay. And so, okay. you know, we we've got a couple institutional owners today couple of whom have been along the ride all the way back to the original transaction, but really, really uh, supportive, but it's a, it's a very different structure now because we got, we were able to basically retire all of that debt. How about that? So now it's a few owners on the cap, a few major equity holders. Yes. It's a handful of uh, equity holders um, that, uh, and you know, we have a board and the whole thing, but it, it took Steve literally four to five years to dig out of that gigantic balance sheet hole. Was and, that an opportunity? I don't know how much you can share, but this might be a good uh, piece of advice or a learning point for some people. Was there, an, was there an opportunity for you at some point as the PE firm was exiting, was there an opportunity for you to invest personally and become a major equity holder in the business or no? It's a good question. Um, and and I never broached that or came up with it. You know, at the time, you know, I will tell you, we had a lot of, you know, near-death experiences along the way as we were trying to get through restructure, restructure. We had another uh, Hayden Kind note that came due and we'd have to restructure that. Um, and so we we kind of came up to the edge a few times in that, in that span, but survived. And, you know, in a lot of ways, that whole experience of getting out of there has made us a heck, a heck of a lot stronger now. You know, it's like, man, Oh yeah, you can get that far. We can get through anything, right? And uh, 
it's it's really only been in the last six or seven years that we've been really more in that growth and building and development mode. We I couldn't even think about that for the first five or six years. It was all always about just survival out of this debt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's survival. <laughs> um, and you know, if if one of my human touch people were to watch this now, they would probably be horrified because you know it's I can't stuff. You know, people people at the time didn't know how tough it you know. How challenging that was. Or there's was. another. There's, there's another. We could do a whole episode on this topic right here. Yeah. The the sleepless nights and the stress that a CEO has that they simply cannot tell the employees, yeah. even if they want to, even even if we want to share news, we can't for various reasons. And there is so much stress and sleepless nights that that revolve around that as a cs as a ceo especially when like you said near-death experiences it's hard for me to describe to anybody that has never sat in a ceo chair until you've lived it until you've laid in bed going holy shit if this next deal doesn't come through we're not going to make yeah, payroll in two, two weeks <laughs> yeah yeah it is uh yeah you're right yeah they they just don't know sorry i didn't mean to go off on a tangent there no but... no no. it's it's really it's really pivotal and and you know in a lot of ways steve i i you know i have as much personal satisfaction in that whole process as i ever did growing to you know a 300 million dollar retail business with Bose. I, I i do i because i the, the pain the challenge the hurdles that had to be overcome are at least as great yeah um, absolutely and you made and so um you've lived a few different lives how about acquisitions tell us uh, before I run out of time, tell us about, um, I know you purchased Relax the Back. Were there others in there that I have forgotten about or don't know about? No, it was, it was Relax the Back at the time. So we, uh, yeah, we, we acquired that back in 2016. It doesn't seem that long, but it's, it's now been several years. Um, and that was really kind of, a, you know, the, the, the market we're in is so much different today and even then versus what it was in the first 20 years of human touch. I, I get jealous all the time and say, man, I wish I'd been here for the first 15 years. We were the only player. You sell through retail, sharper image. I mean, it, it's just like I can go to sleep and just, you know, don't have to worry about it. <laughs> but, you know, when, quite honestly, when we started to have problems right around that mid-2008, it opened the door for a lot of other people. So the competitive landscape is now, uh, yeah, there wasn't a competitive landscape back uh, prior to 2005. Now it's very broad. Mm -hmm. uh, and so all the thinking changes. So we have to spend much more time thinking about our strategy and our differentiation and what's going to set us apart from everyone else. And where do we, you know, where do we have relative strength and so forth? Uh, and one of those relative strengths is that one of, you know, one of our larger customers was Relax the Back. And we'd been there for a long, long time selling human touch product. Mm -hmm. um, we, you know, I'd gotten to know the Relax the Back team there over time and the executive group and had a few conversations, one that led to another. And uh, I, I remember sitting in a, they had a convention one year where I was kind of sitting as one of the vendors there getting the very high level financial overview from the then CFO of Relax the Back. and kind of said, yeah, well, last year we, this was our revenue and we did this and it brought our EBITDA down to this. And I looked at it and I said, your EBITDA is this? That means maybe there, you know, so it, it got me thinking. <laughs> <laughs> so if that's kind of the space here, um, maybe there's something that's workable. How about that? So I just realized you worked for a manufacturer that was one of the first to roll out their own retail stores. Then you went to work for a manufacturer that was probably one of the first to buy their retail competitor <laughs> or buy their retail customer. Sorry, buy their retail customer. Yeah. 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 Wow. Um, wow. Yes. 
Right. Well, and and before we before we acquired Relax the Back, the first conversation I had with the then CFO at the time or CEO at the time, because I know they were looking to add franchisees, was I said, "Have you ever considered any of your vendors to be a franchisee?" And he said, "Well, that's a terrible idea. Why would we do that? You'd be biased. I mean, we can't open up franchisees to vendors." And then we said, "Well, you know, think about it." We went back and forth for a little while, and then finally said. Can we have that conversation again about a vendor being a franchisee? <laughs> so we actually opened two of our own stores in New England. And it was good for us because it helped us understand exactly what operating a relaxed back store was all about. We got that mm -hmm. native knowledge and, and you know, understood and appreciated all that going kind of goes under the hood. Good move. Great I, move. So, so when I came back to the CEO three years later and I said, you know, now we've had a couple of stores. Have you ever considered one of your vendors acquiring the company? Well, that's a lousy idea. Why would we ever consider? <laughs> it was like Groundhog Day on a similar conversation. But um, one thing led to the next and had a good dialogue. And, and we ultimately wired, ended up taking them on, which has proven to be a very good move for us. And you wow. know, it helps to ver vertically orient, obviously, a lot of the channel, a lot of exposure for our products. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it was a very good move for us. Um, can you do this? Uh, I know I'm backing you up on time here. Um, can you give a quick for the listeners? Uh, let me just uh, make sure we share this. So, it's humantouch.com, humantouch.com, or relaxtheback.com. Relax uh, David Wood can also be found on LinkedIn if you want to uh, connect with him there. Uh, he, he likes to get a bunch of those bullshit sales messages through LinkedIn, so send him a bunch of those. <laughs> <laughs> I love those. Yeah. Uh, uh, you want to give a quick, uh, just a quick, um, what is Human Touch? Uh, uh, just a, a minute or two overview for the listeners that may not know what Human Touch is, and then a relax the back, just a quick one, if you don't mind. Yeah, Human Touch, uh, well, Human Touch and Relax the Back collectively, we, we think of ourselves as a health and wellness company. I mean, we are in the wellness space. Human Touch is really the product piece of our wellness offerings, primarily comprised today of massage chairs and zero gravity recliners. So those are kind of the spaces that we are in and have been in for many years. We also do some targeted massage products. But at the end of the day, while we sell uh, products, components, and physical things, what we're really in the business of is helping people feel better, be more productive. And, and certainly post-COVID, you know, the whole wellness space has really grown a lot. Yes, um, no, no doubt about it. Yeah, it, it's uh, and, and the awareness is very different today. Relax the Back is our retail uh, component of the wellness offering. And in fact, uh, it, it Relax the Back is the largest uh, back hair specialty chain in the U.S., been around for more than 40 years. Um, but one of the things that we are doing, Steve, is, is our moniker now is Live Wellness. Okay. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're moving from catering to just the people who wake up in the morning and say, wow, my back really hurts. I need a solution to solutions that also keep someone from getting up in the morning and having that problem. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. I'm really focused on, you know, uh, ergonomic solutions, feeling your best 24 hours a day. So whether I'm at work, I'm sleeping in my house, I'm relaxing at home, I'm in my car, we've got solutions um, 24 hours a day for all of those things. And so mm -hmm. we continue to evolve the messaging in a more broad way. Human Touch, uh, you're selling direct to the consumer from your website. Relax right. the Back is, is basically the retail center for a lot of the same products many of the same products but relax the back is more broad uh we have many many more vendors so whether you want a tempurpedic mattress or you might want an x chair office chair or whatever those are as well uh ironically enough in relax the back we even sell competitive massage chairs and zero gravity recliners to our own uh just so that we show some diversity oh so how about that? okay very i good. have the pleasure of having a few vendors that i can consider both competitors and partners at the same time how about that that can be a whole nother podcast. <laughs> wow, David. I mean, 
I could keep you on for another hour. I apologize that I'm backing you up here. I know you're a busy guy. I'm good. Uh, uh, you know, um, do you have time for a couple of just one one or two more questions here? It might go over uh, one minute here or so. Are you okay? Yeah. Um, if you had to summarize, if you, if you were, do you, have you taught at any colleges? Have you done any courses or anything yet? I, I did a lot of internal leadership teaching at Bose at one time. I actually, one of my dreams for a long time was to become a teacher and professor. I've, I've kind of backed off of that in years, but uh, it's it's been something on my mind. I could see it. Um, if you were to spend two or three minutes on a generalization of how to become a CEO, how to get there, how would you describe that? If you were just having coffee with somebody and you had three or four minutes to tell them, how do you get to the CEO chair? How would you describe it? Um, yeah, it's a long answer to a to a simple question, right? There are so many dimensions to it. Uh, again, I think a lot of it's good fortune. A lot of it's learning. A lot of it is taking the risks and jumping in and doing things that you don't necessarily feel 100% capable of doing. Uh, you will learn them. And if you bring along the right people alongside, it'll accelerate that learning for you. So you need to do that. You... You never can get, don't, you can't lock in on the things that were successful. I, I think one of the things that people have a hard time with is, yeah, we did that thing 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and that's why we're successful. We need to do more of that. Well, maybe, but probably not. And part of the reason that you find so many of these successful companies die is become, become, you become so attached to what you had done and the world has moved on. I mean, the pace of technology, the pace of evolution, I mean, I, for me, I spend a lot of time trying to learn. So during COVID, I, I took a couple of courses to get my digital marketing certification, just because not, not that I do digital marketing day to day, but I want to I want to deeply understand it. Wow. Um, recently, I've been taking a couple of uh, AI courses just because, look, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be Good an move. AI coder, but I need to understand this stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think learning and acquiring new skills and getting familiar with things is never ending. And you have to be passionate about learning. You can't get too attached to the things that used to work. Um, and you have to rely on really good people around you to make good decisions and not be fixated on how something gets done, but what gets done. And if you can align on the what and allow good people to drive the how, those are really the main components. Good stuff, David. Good stuff. My friend, excellent catching up with you. Uh, appreciate the advice. Appreciate you sharing your story on the Rider Flex podcast for the listeners. Thank you, sir. Yeah, my pleasure, Steve. Really good to see you.